Tonight I'd like to talk about five deeply habituated patterns or habits of mind. And this is what the Buddha, or how he described these five patterns. He said, when we attend carelessly to them, they cause lack of vision, lack of knowledge, are detrimental to wisdom, tendency to vexation, leading away from Nibbana. So I think they're worth recognizing (laughs) and to see how they function and to see that when we do attend carefully to them and see into their empty, impermanent nature, we're no longer caught in the, the web of delusion. I'm going to talk about them in the reverse of the usual order, saving my favorite for last. So in backwards order, the first of these states which cause vexation, lack of vision, lack of knowledge, detrimental to wisdom, is the mind state, the mind habit of doubt. Now when we use this word in English, We use it really in different ways because sometimes doubt can be understood as something quite skillful. If we think of it as an aspect of the mind of inquiry, of investigation, the opposite of blind belief, where we really are looking, doubting in that sense, what is really going on, what is happening here. The sense in which the Buddha talked of it as being a hindrance is not that aspect but the aspect of what we could call skeptical doubt. And this is or refers to the mind state, the mind pattern of uncertainty and indecision, of perplexity. It's like being at a crossroads and not knowing which way to go. So our minds simply go back and forth. Should I go this way? Should I go that? Which is right? Which is wrong? We go back and forth between the alternatives and don't actually go any place. In the same way, when skeptical doubt is working in our minds, in our practice, it actually brings the development of our meditation to a standstill. Because when doubt is strong, it doesn't even allow us to move forward and make a mistake, to take a wrong turn and then learn from our mistakes, because it's that quality of indecision, that quality of confusion. We're always checking, you know, wondering, trying to decide. The great American yogi, Yogi Berra, (laughs) who is a font of great wisdom, really summed it up. He summed up this mind state perfectly. He said, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. (laughs) And so that's what happens when doubt is present. Doubt in meditation takes some very particular forms. And we really can learn to recognize it you know, as it's arising in the mind, and it's essential to recognize it, because actually of all the hindrances, doubt is the most dangerous. 
because it's the one that actually brings our practice to a standstill. The others may be perturbing in one way or another, but this stops us. So we really have to see in a very careful and subtle way how it's arising within us. So one form of Tao, which you probably you know, have experienced to some extent, one point or another in the retreat, it's doubt about the practice. What does sitting here for so many weeks, watching my breath, have to do with anything? <laughs> you know, what possible purpose is this serving? It's really useless. You know, and so that thought comes through. But when we look around, you know, why are all these people around me looking like zombies? You know, walking around, moving slowly, not looking at one another. And so the doubting mind begins to come in. We might start comparing practices. You know, maybe this one isn't the right one for me. Maybe I should be doing Tibetan chanting or Sufi dancing or some other thing that, you know, would at least be more fun. (laughs) (laughs) Sitting, walking, sitting, walking. (laughs) Doubt about the teachers. You know, this is not uncommon because especially in the West, where so many of you have had so many different teachers. You know, it's part of our Dharma culture. We practice perhaps in different traditions with different teachers. And of course, each teacher has their own viewpoint, their own perspective, their own take on things. So we hear one thing, and especially when there are difficulties in our practice, hmm, who's right? This doesn't sound, this doesn't sound right. We go back and forth. We just start doubting. And again, it brings our practice to a standstill. Perhaps the most debilitating form of doubt, not only in our practice, but also in our lives, is self-doubt. All those tapes in the mind, those thoughts in the mind, where we doubt our ability to do this, to accomplish something, even if we understand its value, we really are connecting with it. You know, connecting with our aspirations with it. It's down and can I do this? This is too hard. This is too difficult. This isn't the right time. Am I doing it right? And it's always this mind coming in and doubting ourselves in the way we're proceeding. There's an interesting phrase in English which sums up the quality of this mind state, the phrase being someone plagued by doubt. Because it is a plague. It really is a very difficult mind state. Instead of making the experiment, making the commitment, okay, for this period of time, I'm going to do this wholeheartedly and fully, make the experiment to see for ourselves its value, its benefit, when we're plagued by doubt of any of these kinds, it stops us from making that experiment. And in this way, doubt really becomes self-fulfilling, a self-fulfilling prophecy. Because when we're caught up in these doubting tapes, it actually is useless. And we're not learning anything. 
And so it fulfills its own prophecy. When self-doubt or doubting in any of its forms is strong in the mind, when this pattern is not seen clearly and recognized clearly, it's exhausting. You know, and in the texts, it's described, it's described as the thorny mind because doubt keeps jabbing the mind like a thorn. You know, and, and so when we keep getting jabbed by the not noticing of this particular pattern, we get very discouraged, very frustrated, makes us irritable. Now the great seduction of doubt, and it is seductive, is that it comes masquerading in the voice of wisdom. We hear this very wise sounding voice in our minds. Now it's very reasonable trying to figure out intellectually what our experience is and what we should do. We hear this wise sounding voice and we're seduced into thinking that somehow we will figure it out on the intellectual level. And perhaps to some extent, you know, conceptual clarification is helpful. And it is true that in certain areas, arenas, thought is an extremely powerful and effective tool in understanding. And it is also limited. There are ranges of experience where thought doesn't go and can't go. Imagine trying to really know the experience a really good meal by reading the menu. You, know, you can read the menu and think about the meal for a long time and it will be very different than the actual experience of it. Or the difference between the experience of listening to music, great music, and reading a book about music theory. Thought has limitation in terms of understanding the depth of our experience, and we need to recognize it and to see. It can really only take us so far. So what to do when doubt arises? When we hear these different voices in the mind or tapes in the mind, we need to be mindful. We need to be alert. We need not to be giving careless attention, but careful attention to the arising of it. We need to catch these doubting tapes quickly so that instead of drowning in them, getting lost in them for long periods of time, when then it becomes difficult to extricate ourselves, if we keep the radar out, and we're really just watching for the repetitive kinds of doubting tapes, and we catch it quickly, and we note it, we see it. Doubting tape, doubting tape. And one of the things we see through this careful attention, the wisdom that arises out of this awareness, and it's a powerfully transforming wisdom, we begin to see that doubt is just another empty thought. It's just a thought passing in the mind. And if we can see it for what it is, it no longer has the power to seduce us.
as an aspect of this wisdom of understanding this pattern, it's very instructive to notice for oneself, not as a question of belief, but really to see for yourself how when the mind is lost in doubt, it is taking us away, it is removing us from the realm of direct experience. We are no longer in touch with what's happening. We're no longer in the vicinity of being in touch with what's happening. We are just lost in indecisive speculation. And then notice both how being lost in doubt takes us away and how in the moment of coming back to the simplicity of a breath, a movement, a sensation, a sound, in the moment of coming back, all of that doubt, all of that confusion is dispelled. There's no problem in in being aware of a sound or a sight or a sensation. Already we're back, already we're connected. So it's not difficult to do, but we need to be alert. The second of these mind states which hinder wisdom, which obstruct wisdom, which cause vexation, is the constellation of mind states and feelings around restlessness. Restlessness, regret, worry, agitation. And this is quite a different quality than doubt. This regret or agitation or restlessness, it comes when there's a certain imbalance within us. There's too much energy. It's a very agitated quality and not enough steadiness of mind, not enough stillness, not enough concentration to hold the energy. And so the energy is just spilling out in a very disturbing way. Again, we experience it in our practice in a few different ways. One way, which is not uncommon, is when it's very strong, is this incredible, restless feeling in the body. You know, where you're sitting and it just feels like you're going to jump out of your skin. That feels like it is impossible to sit still. And I've gone through periods of this intense, restless energy in my practice. As I've mentioned on other retreats, there were times in Burma at the monastery. And it would usually happen at the same hour, you know, every day, somehow, I don't know whether it became a habit or just something in the cycle of my energy, but it was like eight o'clock in the evening or so. I'd be sitting, I couldn't. And so I'd get up and kind of be running around the monastery, you know, trying to let some of this energy go. I'm sure it looked pretty strange. Here's this tall Westerner, you know, in the middle of all these, Burmese monks running around. But fortunately, it was just a phase. You know, know that it can happen. You know, that sometimes it just gets very intense and we need to learn in one way or another how to work with it. Sometimes the body is still, but the mind is a whirlwind of restlessness. We're sitting, we could look really blissful and serene and quiet from the outside. But from the inside, you know, our minds can be this agitated whirlwind of thoughts and feelings and images and fantasies jumping from one thing to another. 
Sometimes this restlessness takes the form, this restlessness of mind takes the form of getting caught in obsessive thought patterns. We're just kind of thinking the same thing over and over and over again. Sometimes it takes the form of regret and guilt, you know, where we're remembering something we've done that may have been unskillful, and we can't let go of it. You know, we just keep turning ourselves again and again uh, with self-judgment, which is really what guilt is about. It's really an ego trick of the mind. We're strengthening the sense of self. There's a big sense of I in guilt, because we're saying how bad we are. You know, in a negative way, we're creating this sense of self. And that's why it's a form of restlessness. It's not helpful. It's not wholesome. Sometimes restlessness or agitation takes the form of this wonderful yogi phenomena called yogi mind. And it's quite amazing. I I don't know why the Buddha didn't mention this in the suttas, (laughs) because it's such a common experience of yogis on retreats where some how the mind just picks up some idea, blows it way out of proportion to the reality or to the importance of what's really happening. And there are endless examples of yogi mind at work. One time I was on retreat here and I just happened to pass by the front office. That's all. I was just coming in from outside. I was doing my walking meditation, minding my own business, being mindful. I passed the office. And as I passed the office, I just heard Joseph. That's all I heard. I spent the next days. They hate me. (laughs) What did I do wrong? (laughs) I'm bothering them. My mind just went on this incredible trip of projection, you know, and getting lost in this. That's yogi mind. So be watchful when the mind gets fixated on something. That is a very good indication. You know, the office gives you the wrong kind of toothpaste, and you go into a murderous rage. That is yogi mind. It's not the toothpaste. Be watchful for these exaggerated, you know, blown up states because it's really a quality of restlessness, of of agitation. And if you can recognize it as yogi mind, it sort of punctures the balloon. And so we don't get so caught up into the belief of it. So what to do with restlessness, whether it's restlessness of the body, restlessness or agitation in the mind? As with the doubt, the first and essential step is recognizing it. So instead of simply being lost and carried away on this energy, we need to practice being mindful, practicing that careful attention so that we see, yes, this is what's happening. So we name it. We label it restless, restless or agitated, whatever whatever form it takes. And begin to understand it as an energetic imbalance. So we understand the energy behind what's happening. 
too much energy, too much energy for the stillness or concentration to hold it. So what we need to do is to create a steadier container so that we can contain the energy in a somewhat stable way. One way of doing this, as the mind is just lost in the agitation, is reining the mind in, developing the concentration by not letting it just jump from object to object, but really making a strong resolve and determination, okay, I'm going to stay with the breath. We rein the mind in. We work with what we've talked about before, those two jhanic factors of concentration, of connecting with the beginning of the object here, the breath, and sustaining the attention. So just remind yourself, this is what you're practicing at this time, connecting and sustaining. The key to doing this successfully is not trying to do it for too long at a time. And so what I would suggest, and people have said that it's very helpful to use this frame, work with the connecting and sustaining of your attention for just half a breath. That's all. A half a breath at a time. Beginning of the in-breath, sustain your attention for the in-breath. That's all. That's your resolve. Connect with the beginning of the out-breath, sustain your attention just for the out-breath. A whole breath is too much. To come in and sit down and think you're going to be with your breath for an hour, I have no words to describe that aspiration. (laughs) A half a breath. This is doable. And it's enough. We just have to do half breath at a time. As we practice this and cultivate it in this very defined, limited way, half a breath, half a breath, half a breath, the mind does get concentrated. The agitation, the restlessness begins to subside. We get reconnected. There's another way of working with the restlessness, and it's really the opposite way. And so we really have two choices in this. And you can experiment and see which one is more appropriate in the moment. Sometimes we're getting restless because of too much effort. We're straining, we're struggling, we're getting tight, and that's causing a lot of agitation in our system. And so when there's too much effort, if that's where the restless energy is coming from, then instead of reining in or tightening down, really what we want to do is open up. We want to soften, we want want to relax, make a very big space, a big container, so that the energy can settle within the spaciousness. And so in that situation, you can be aware of your whole body sitting, be aware of sound, have a very open awareness. Restlessness is often like a whirlwind going through space. It's just like this. It ceases to be a problem when we're not identified with the whirlwind, but actually become the space. And then we're resting in that openness, we're resting in the awareness, and the whirlwind of energy passes through, 
but we're mindful, we're holding it, we're aware of it, not lost, not identified with it, until the mind comes to a place of rest. There's doubt, there's restlessness, regret and guilt, agitation, yogi mind, worry. The third of the hindrances, one that almost everybody has is intimately familiar with, is sloth and torpor. You know, it's just that feeling of sleepiness or dullness or heaviness. Now, it's very common, of course, in the first days of a retreat, but even as a retreat goes on, it can often can often occur at certain times of the day. You know, where we're going along, and it's just this wave of sleepiness or dullness arises. I think one of the great gifts of meditation, of course there are many, but of being on retreat, is that we begin to see very clearly and very vividly how much in our lives, how much of our lives is driven by the energy of stimulation. Now we're out in the world and all our senses are being stimulated. And that's a lot of the energy that we move on. No wonder it's exhausting. So we come on retreat, we quiet down, we really cut out a lot of that stimulation. So we've lost our energy source for the time being. And so there can be periods where we feel very slothful or dull. But what happens, and I'm sure you've experienced this to a very large degree, at least at times we tap in to the energy of this mind-body system. It's not the energy of stimulation. It's this life force, this life process. As we drop into this energy field that we are, an incredible kind of wakefulness comes. Much greater, much clearer, much healthier than that which comes from being stimulated continually. One way the practice develops with regard to this hindrance, and this was just a pattern that I noticed a lot in my earlier years. When I was practicing in India, I would notice that I wouldn't really get mindful and alert until about six in the evening. You know, I'd be kind of sitting and walking, there'd be this sluggishness, and finally around six, oh, yeah little wakefulness. But as I kept practicing, you know, after some weeks, and then, oh, it wasn't six. I began to get awake at three. And then, oh, noon. You know, and over time, and, and some considerable time, it worked its way back. You know, and the energy, the wakefulness started to come earlier and earlier. There's a deeper meaning of sloth and torpor than sleepiness. And I think, although as sleepiness or dullness, this does come up in our practice and we work with it, there's a more profound understanding of what these factors in the mind are doing. The deeper manifestation 
of sloth and torpor is not particularly the periodic times of sleepiness, but it's the deep pattern we can have, the deeply habituated pattern of withdrawing from difficulties, withdrawing, retreating in the face of difficulty. That's really what sloth and torpor means. It's the habit of not arousing the effort and the energy to really be with and face and explore challenges and difficulties. Now just like doubt often comes masquerading as wisdom, sloth and torpor is really sneaky. Because very often, this aspect of retreating from difficulty, a deeper meaning of it, it comes masquerading as compassion. You know, we hear this very compassionate voice in our minds. Let me take care of myself. I've been working really hard. I think a little nap is just right. Let me have a cup of tea. It'll nurture me. (laughs) This is not to say that there are in times when we do need to rest. But probably not as often as this voice comes in the mind. Remember, again, this is going back to my early years of practice when I was uh, studying with Goenkaji uh, in India when he first started teaching. We would get up, the first sitting would be at four o'clock in the morning. And the sitting would be for two hours, you know, and then breakfast. So I would get up like everybody else at four in the morning. But I had my, my place in the hall, this was in Bodh Gaya. I, I had gotten my little place against the wall. So I would sit, I'd begin my sitting, you know, about half an hour, 45 minutes into the sitting. First I'd lean back against the wall, then I'd pull my knees up, then I'd... <laughs> for days, you know, I would go on. I'd just fall asleep, you know. After a week, two weeks, three weeks of this happening, this voice started coming in my mind. This is foolish. Why don't you just sleep and then when you get up, at least you'll be alert and you'll be mindful. Why do you keep just getting up and falling asleep in the sitting? And his voice was very seductive. But I think not due to any great resolve of mind, the, the culture of the Course didn't really permit it. So, in that way, it was helpful to me. But what was so interesting, it took time. It was a week or two weeks or three weeks, I don't remember now. But at a certain point, I came in, I sat down, and I was completely awake. And if I had not continued making the effort of just coming and doing it, I wouldn't have gotten to that point. I would have withdrawn from the difficulty and it would not have been helpful. When we're under the influence of sloth and torpor, both the dullness of mind and this habit of always pulling back from difficulty or retreating, not willing to engage with those things that are challenging, there's not much joy or pleasure in our practice. It's a very low energy state. There's not much joy or pleasure in our lives when this habit is strong, because we're always pulling back or holding back, and it's a contracted state. So how to work with it? 
This is a common pattern. It's not that it's just afflicting us as individuals. It's a common pattern of mind. As with the others, fundamentally, we need to recognize it quickly. We need to see the first sign, the first indication of this dullness or sleepiness or retreating quality of mind. See it when it arises. Notice it. Really note it as dullness, sleepiness, sloth, whatever word you use. And then bring some investigation. Don't just name it and then happily slide into it. (laughs) Oh yes, I'm sleeping. (laughs) It's like we want to name it and not retreat. We want to look at it carefully and you can really bring a very keen investigation. What is this state? What actually is the experience that I'm calling sleepiness? What is the experience that I'm calling dullness? And so we begin to look. In our bodies, what are we feeling? What are the different sensations in different places? Now, what is the quality of mind? And so we take an interest in it rather than simply slipping into it. We can recognize that we need to arouse the energy factor. Now, there's one principle, both in practice and in life, that is often deeply misunderstood. In fact, it's understood as just the opposite of how it is. And that is the principle, and this is true in meditation and in what we do in our lives, it's the principle that effort creates energy. And yet often we have the idea that we need energy to make effort. You know, and so when you're feeling sluggish or dull or tired, the thought is, ah, you know, I need to rest. Whereas really what we need to do is to make or create some effort which will lead to energy. And just a very simple example of this, which I'm sure you're all familiar with. You know, sometimes when you're feeling really tired, really sluggish, then you go out and you do some exercise. You make the effort to do the exercise, the physical exercise. And after some time, the whole system is energized. It's not that you had to take a rest first before you could do the exercise. It was just calling up enough determination, enough resolve. Okay, let me, let me create some effort here. Let me do something. And that itself creates energy. It's the same principle in practice. So you could do, for example, some careful, precise noting. Just, you know, a note a second. That takes some effort. That's not just going to happen by itself. You need to really do something. That will help to awaken the mind. Stand up. takes more energy to stand. takes more effort to stand than to stay seated. Now open the eyes. A key element in working with sloth, and it really can't be emphasized enough, and the Buddha talked of it often. When you read the suttas, it's, he comments on this in very many of them, moderation in food. There is a huge direct connection between how much we eat and either feeling energized by it or feeling dulled by it. 
So pay attention to that, especially in the evening. I've noticed when I'm on retreat that I actually feel the most alert when I do eight precepts. And if I'm not doing eight precepts, the amount that I actually take in the evening, anything more than a small amount, my next sitting, I will just feel the energy depressed. So experiment. Again, none of this is put out as things you have to believe. It's all about your own investigation, your own seeing, your own working with these states. One other mantra, which I put out a little cautiously, so just take it as a possible experiment. Don't don't something. <laughs> but one mantra which has helped me at times in my practice, given my basically lazy nature, is choose the difficult. When confronted with a choice, choose the difficult rather than the easy. So just see where that leads, you know, if you want to play with it. Okay, one last word about working with sloth and torpor. The word for effort and energy, which is its antidote, in Pali is virya. And the Buddha talks a lot about the essential need to arouse virya. Another translation of that word, which has been tremendously helpful to me, is instead of translating it exclusively as effort or energy, understanding it in its meaning of courage. And when I've been in the most difficult places in my practice, both with emotional states and physical difficulty, that is the word that really helped me be present. Because courage, the word, the word comes from the word for heart, of kur. And courage is that quality of strength of heart to be present. And it has a different connotation than effort. And sometimes it's really that quality of courage that energizes us. Can I have the strength of heart to be present in whatever situation of difficulty might be arising? That can be tremendously energizing in our practice and the antidote to this factor of sloth and torpor. Doubt, restlessness, agitation, regret, worry, sloth and torpor. The fourth of the hindrances is aversion. And aversion takes many, many forms. You've probably experienced most of them. It can be anger, it can be hatred, it can be annoyance, it can be irritation, it can be boredom, it can be fear, it can be the judging mind. It's all these ways of not liking what's present, of responding to what we're experiencing as being unpleasant. We don't like to experience the unpleasant. And so the mind 
is in a reactive habit pattern of dislike, of aversion, of not wanting to be there. Very easy to see in our relationship to physical pain. Your pain arises when you're sitting. What is the just immediate response? Is it equanimous? Is it welcoming? Is it, oh no. And that response can be of varying degrees, as you know. Contraction, frustration, impatience, just not liking it. Aversion arises in our mind about painful past experiences. You know, we sit here, everything is fine, we may not be feeling pain in the body, and we have a memory of something that happened, something unpleasant. And based on the memory, it can trigger huge waves of aversion or anger or ill will. It's not really happening. We're reacting to a thought, not to the situation, but because we're not seeing it that clearly, we get caught up in the waves of the reaction. More fantastic than that is we can be sitting here imagining some unpleasant situation that will arise in the future. It hasn't come. We haven't experienced, but we think we might. (laughs) And the mind just gets carried away. And I have been filled with anger or annoyance or irritation about imagined events in the future. So we need to wake up (laughs) and see what's happening. Otherwise, we're just at the mercy of these thoughts that pass through our mind. So we need to be really mindful and say, we can get very irritated at unpleasant little situations or incidents on the retreat. You know, somebody bugs you. You just don't like the way they walk. You don't like the way they eat. You don't like the way they dress. They're always in your way. We call it the the Vipassana Vendetta. (laughs) You know, and the mind just starts going on and on in this aversion. Aversion arises when we personalize things that are impersonal. Now, some days ago, the groundskeepers were here with the leaf blowers. Why are they disturbing my practice? Why should they be here? And getting lost in whatever degree of annoyance, irritation, anger that might have arisen. Practicing in Asia, as I've mentioned many times, where sound, disturbing sound, is always you know, a situation that that is there, one really learns how just to be with it and not to get caught in this habituated pattern. So how to work with the different forms of aversion that arise? First step, we need to recognize, need to recognize it quickly because it's harder. Once the emotion is full-blown, once the reaction is full-blown, it's much harder to kind of extricate oneself, then if we can be alert for their arising, 
And this is why the Buddha emphasized so often careful attention to these states. These states are nourished by careless attention. And they're too powerful, they're too strong to be careless about. So we need to really work with them in a very uh, careful way. In working with aversion, we need to be careful not to start judging the aversion, or start judging ourselves for having it, which just ties us further in a knot. Can we open to it as another arising state? See what other emotions might be there, unacknowledged, which are feeding it. Sometimes we're aware of the anger, and we're noting it, anger, irritation, annoyance, whatever. But we're still feeling very caught in it. Sometimes there's something underneath going on that we're not seeing, as an example. Maybe it's a feeling of being hurt. You know, we're remembering a situation that causes, us, uh, causes anger to arise. And we notice the anger, but we're not picking up, oh, feeling hurt, hurt, and opening to that. Or very predominantly, you know, with anger or ill will, often a feeling of self-righteousness. Well, I'm right, you know, and so I should be angry. It's very seductive because we often justify this hindrance to ourselves. We rationalize. And the Buddha pegged it so well, as always. He said, anger with its poisoned source and fevered climax, murderously sweet. We delight in it often because we're justifying it to ourselves. We can't very well or usually control what feelings come, but we can cultivate a mindful relationship to them. And this is what our practice is. Can we be mindful without getting lost, without drowning in it, without venting? Holding on to anger through self-justification, you know, well, I should be angry, is like holding on to a hot burning coal and justifying it. Well, I should be holding on to this. Who is suffering? When we're caught, when we're burning with the anger, who is it that's suffering? Sometimes people feel that anger is their main source of energy for taking action in the world. You know, for making change in the world, we hear this a lot. You know, if I didn't get angry, I wouldn't engage in the world. I wouldn't do anything. As, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, I went to teach this retreat for lawyers and law students. This is a big theme, big theme in that group. And last year, when I was there, one of the one of the students said something really interesting to me. He said he relies on anger. You know, in that situation, because if he didn't get into the anger, he would feel fear. And he felt that feeling the fear would weaken him and make him less effective. He hadn't considered the possibility 
but one could actually be accepting of the fear as the mind state and not being driven by it. But it was the fear of the fear that drove him to anger, to being lost in it, to strengthening it. It does give strength, but it's not in a very helpful way. It gives strength at a very great price to us. When we use anger as our energizing source, it takes a price in health, it takes a price in well-being, it takes a price in open-heartedness. There is a much more skillful, a much more sustainable energy source for our action in the world. One that doesn't harm others, doesn't harm ourselves, and that is the energy of compassion. And in the next days we'll be talking more about this quality of compassion as a motivation for action. Just read this little teaching by Thich Nhat Hanh about how to work with anger when it arises. We're mindful of it, but we're mindful in a particular way. And Thich Nhat Hanh has this, as you know, this just wonderful way of teaching and being. He said, the Buddhist attitude is to take care of anger. We don't suppress it, we don't run away from it, we just breathe and hold it with utmost tenderness. The anger is no longer alone, it is with our mindfulness. Anger is like a closed flower in the morning. As the sun shines on it, the flower will bloom, because the sunlight penetrates deeply into it. Mindfulness is like that. If you keep breathing, mindfulness particles will infiltrate the anger. When sunshine penetrates a flower, the flower cannot resist. It has to open itself and show its heart to the sun. If you keep shining your compassion and understanding on it, your anger will soon crack and you will be able to look into its depths and see its roots. It's workable. We need to be with it with compassion, compassion for the suffering of it and hold it in mindfulness. We begin to understand it. The fifth and the last hindrance, and the one which really deserves many talks on its own merits, is that of desire or the wanting mind. And this is a tremendously powerful force. Desire or the wanting mind is the driving force of samsara. It's what keeps this whole cycle of becoming going. It keeps us bound on this wheel. And just as aversion is the response to unpleasant situations and experience, Desire or wanting is the response to pleasant ones. There's something pleasant, we want it. We desire it. Has many forms, just like aversion, has many gradations. Desire can take the form of obsessive passions, where the mind is consumed. It can take the form of addictive cravings, where we're just caught in the addiction of what we want. It can take the form of recurrent fantasies where we're just lost in the pleasure of our fantasies. Or it can be very mild. It can just be a passing whim of a want. Now on retreat, the scope for acting out these desires is limited quite a bit. But it doesn't really stop. 
the wanting mind. I mean, even on retreat, we find many ways, finds many ways to give it expression. A favorite walking space. You have a place to walk that you like. And there's this bell rings at the end of the sitting better get up quickly and find my space. Or you're sitting and just all of these lustful fantasies, you know, at different times may arise in the mind, and just getting lost in them, indulging them because they're pleasurable. Or our own internal stories and dramas. We get so interested in being the star of our our own story. (laughs) And here nobody's challenging that. It's easy to sit and just get lost in it. It's a kind of wanting, a kind of desire. It really gets bad toward the end of a long retreat. You know, this thirst of wanting. When you find yourself reading for the hundredth time the notice about the laundry... you will know that just something, give me something to read. In our meditation practice, it takes a more insidious form and it really is helpful to see it. We need to see it. And that is desire or wanting as the mind of expectation. Now we're sitting in our practice or we're walking And we're wanting something to happen. We're wanting a different experience. We get seduced by that because we cast it as a Dharma thought and not seeing it simply as being the expression of wanting, of craving, of desire. So what to do? This is is a very deep pattern of conditioning. As with all the others, We need to be alert. We need to be attentive to begin to train ourselves to pick up the wanting mind when it arises. So it's like setting the radar of our inner screen. In sitting, in moving around, begin to notice that sense of expectation, a very, very tangible manifestation of the wanting mind very easy to notice and helpful to do so. Pay attention as you're moving about to times of rushing. It's just the feeling of rushing. And that can happen at any speed, but what is it? The feeling of rushing rushing is when our mind is ahead of ourselves. We're toppling into the future. It's that energy of wanting something that's ahead of us. And it pulls us forward. We're toppling forward. So that's a good wake-up bell, it's a mindfulness bell, that feeling of rushing. One of the most freeing arenas to work with wanting and desire is to investigate in times of suffering, of whatever kind, you're in some situation of suffering, investigate or see if you can trace back that suffering to some kind of wanting. Wanting something different than how it is. 
but don't stay in the content. Don't stay in the situation. See if you can trace it back to the very energy of the wanting. And I've experienced it very often, and you can investigate for yourselves, but when I do that, I experience it very often as this energetic contraction in the heart. That's how I experience wanting. It's like a tightening of the heart in the wanting, in the desire. And if you can trace back from from the experience of suffering to see if there's a wanting at the very root, wanting anything, and to see, to see, to feel that wanting, and then there's this great liberating moment when we begin to understand that whether we identify with that wanting or not is a choice. It's not that the contraction necessarily will disappear, although sometimes it does. Sometimes there's this tremendous relaxation of the heart. But to see, yeah, this wanting is here. I don't have to buy in. This is a choice. can either get lost in it, identified with it, acted out in one way or another, even on an energetic level, or can we be mindful of it and just feel it, open to it? As I say, very often in that openness, it relaxes. Tremendous freedom in beginning to investigate that possibility. As we work with wanting and desire, we begin to understand renunciation and the power of renunciation in a very different way. Because renunciation in our culture has very bad press. It's not a value. You know, you mention renunciation to people and why would you want to do that? But even if we begin to see, yeah, there might be some value in it, we hold it a lot in the way expressed by St. Augustine. Dear Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. (laughs) You know, and we see, so we see renunciation, yeah, it has a value, maybe in some future time, you know, it'll be of benefit. There's another whole way to see it. And we can, and retreat provides such a good opportunity to see that, to see, to experience to really be there and see that the wanting, the addiction is the suffering and the letting go of the wanting is the relief. Renunciation in this sense is not a burden. It's the letting go of the grip of the wanting. And so in that understanding of renunciation, we see it, this is a place of ease. Just imagine... watching TV, really imagine it, and wanting everything that was advertised. It would be a hell realm. You know, it would be the mind just grasping one thing after another. Fortunately, we don't do that, mostly. You know, we manage to, and we understand the ease of not wanting. 
it's a very rich arena to explore because it really touches on some of the deepest places of suffering and freedom in our lives. So these are the five states of mind the Buddha talked of. He was very direct with it. He called them the hindrances, obstructions, weakeners of wisdom. They're strong forces, strong habit patterns in our mind. They need our attention. They require our careful attention. When we're not mindful of them, we get lost in contraction. We get lost in suffering. We get lost in delusion. And when we are mindful of them, they actually can help be part of the vehicle for awakening. just like to close with a short quote from Milarepa, the great Tibetan yogi. said, I obtain all my knowledge through observing the mind within. Thus all my thoughts become the teaching of the Dharma, and apparent phenomena are all the books I need. It's all here. And you've been given and have given yourself this fantastic opportunity. I obtain all my knowledge, all my understanding, all my wisdom through observing the mind within. You have six weeks, five weeks, however much longer, just to sit and to understand. It's really this fantastic blessing. Let's sit for a few minutes. a half breath. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.